You're listening to All The Best. I'm Maddie McQueen. So there's this meme that sums up a kind of universally recognised feeling of disappointment. Here's the setup. You're driving home with your mom and you're like, hey mom, can we stop and get McDonald's? And then mom says, no, we have food at home. But then when you get home, the food is like a can of beans or an old apple or a whole ass boiled egg shoved inside a slice of bread. It's a fact of being alive that we can't always get what we want. But it's also a fact of life that when we can't get what we want, we usually go for the next best thing. And a pretty hefty percentage of the time, it's not quite as good. It's like going to see a cover band, or the first new person you kiss when you're still in love with your ex, or a lousy goddamn egg sandwich when all you wanted was McDonald's. This week, we have two stories about that feeling. When you can't have the thing you really want and you have to settle for a substitute. Growing up, Molly's father wasn't a figure in her life. Instead, she had dad crushes. This story comes with a language warning. When I was about six, I asked my best friend's dad if he could be my dad. Marley, he said to me 27 years later, it broke my fucking heart. I never really feel free to talk about my father. My family doesn't like it, and I understand that. I think he was a decent dad to my half-siblings, but... Our relationship was extremely complex, so it's a rough sea in which to cling to floating detritus. It's really complex and hard to explain. I had a dad, yes, but I did not know him. I had siblings, yes, but grew up an only child. Even I don't really know what happened. It's done now anyway. My circuits have long been all jumbled up. Let's not fight about how the milk got spilled. Let's just cry instead about how we have no milk now, that it's puddling on the floor, and try to mop it up somehow, even though we have very little in our arsenal that is absorbent. It's a pain in the ass being a fatherless daughter. Daddy issues are so often used to blame and deride people, usually women, for something that they didn't do. It gives you a weird relationship to older men. I only dated one once seeking, I don't know, I guess I just wanted someone to take care of me. It was a disaster. Turns out the type of grown men who date extremely mentally ill, drug-addicted teenage girls are not always awesome guys. Who knew? I don't know how to act around dads or how they work. None of my mum's boyfriends were very dadsy. We were always either buddies or bitter enemies. I felt no dad energy from them. Just try and tell me what to do, guy. You're not my dad. Instead, I had dad crushes. These were wholesome as, utterly non-sexual. There's no, ooh, daddy, sexy time banter with me. It makes me feel weird, but you do you, friends. Instead, I focused on completely unattainable men onto whom I could project all of my confused feelings about my dad. I could idolise them as a perfect father, whatever that meant. And because they were so far away as to be almost unreal, they could never hurt me. My best friend's dad 
seemed like one of those. And so I guess asking him to be my dad too made sense to me as a six-year-old. Fuck, I didn't know how you got dads. Maybe you had to ask for them. That didn't work because he never became my dad. So as time went on, I glommed to father figures, the only other way I knew how, the way most people who fall right on the edge of Gen X and elder millennial would do, through the telly. Early ideal dads? Roscoe Orman as Gordon from Sesame Street. There was something enticingly fatherly about his moustache. In 1987, a moustache was nice and dadly. Steve Martin seemed fun when I watched him in Parenthood. Dressing up as a cowboy for his kid's birthday struck me as something a good dad might do. John Goodman as Dan Connor was the kind of dad I could realistically imagine as mine. Working class, flawed but kind overall. He spent a bunch of time on Roseanne fixing his motorcycle, and he reminded me of the big-bellied bikers my mum was friends with. The ones who gently placed me on the fuel tanks of their Harleys for thunderous rides around the block, who bought me the full collection of Narnia books for my 10th birthday, and who were all sent to prison later on for cooking meth. Look at Tom Hanks, beginning around the era of Sleepless in Seattle, and try not to see the good father vibes rising off him like stink lines in a poorly drawn cartoon. Good dad vibe is an embodiment that's hard to describe, but I know it when I feel it. It's kind but firm, like, I'm not mad, I'm just worried. Silly jokes that make you groan. Letting you sneak out to see friends even though you're grounded, saying, don't tell your mother. It's flannels or beige slacks or dad jeans with the t-shirt tucked in. It's getting him a beer from the fridge after a long day at work and him letting you have a teeny sip and saying, thanks, darling. My ultimate dad crush started in the early 90s and is the most enduring and possibly least problematic of the dad infatuations I've had. It started when I saw an interview on the telly somewhere. Maybe he was strumming his guitar with his kids or just hanging out with them. I remember a well-lit living room, hardwood floors, a shiny Meijan acoustic guitar in his hands. My mum had tapes of his band and the music seemed just good and kind. Something about him radiated dad. It vibed off him and through the screen and I was in. I was in with Neil Finn. If Neil Finn was my dad, he'd write a song about the day I was born, like Our Day by Split Ends. If he was my dad, he'd hold my grubby little kid fingers just so on the huge fretboard of his guitar and teach me how to play G, A and D. Maybe even F, though as an adult, I still can't play F properly. My fingers are too small and weak. If Neil Finn was my dad, he'd ruffle my hair in the bright kitchen as I ate my lunch at the kitchen island. Even though I'm a girl and my always tangly hair needs no extra ruffling, it's in all the books as something dads do. If Neil Finn was my dad, he'd give me a present on my birthday for sure, and it would be a good one, and my cake would be really fancy because Neil Finn is a bit rich and it would be nice to be a bit rich. If Neil Finn was my dad, I guess I wouldn't be me. 
and I have no idea if that's good or bad. I've had a hard time writing this piece, or anything really, since the world tipped over. Too busy being giddily manic and trying to recalibrate the future on a weekly basis, a daily basis. It's easier to just live hour to hour. My dad didn't live to see the pandemic. I saw him before he died, but what's a few hours with a cancer-ravaged skeleton one month before his death to a lifetime of questions? I have no idea what he would have thought about COVID-19. Would he have been a skeptic? Would he have called me to see how I was going in lockdown? I haven't had a lot of dad crushes for the past decade. Maybe I've matured. Maybe I just forgot to do it. Maybe I just saw it as an embarrassing relic of my childhood that I'd replaced with better strategies. I haven't. But I've been thinking of it again recently. As the flux we're in drags on, I slip into it as a coping mechanism now and then. If Neil Finn was my dad, he'd send me a dad-funny text in the mornings, months into level whatever the hell we're on, just to keep my spirits up. I've heard dads have their own crappy sense of humour. Or maybe a picture of the dog on the deck of the nice house he lives in, in a semi-rural area or a blue sea sky coastal locale. Okay, I have no idea where Neil Finn lives. That house would be my home, the place I could always go back to. I don't have that, and it's something that makes my tether to the earth more tenuous, like the string is fraying one fibre at a time. My dad, Neil Finn, would chuck a couple of grand into my bank account because he knows it's been a struggle since I lost my job. I'd be like, nah, dad, nah because I hate accepting money, but he'd be like, take it, it's okay. And I'd cry because I'm scared. And he might say nice things to me and tell me that everything will be okay. Me and Neil Finn, my dad, would Zoom once a week on a set day like a Sunday or something. We'd laugh and drink wine together because in this alternate universe, I didn't have to quit drinking. I can do moderation like everybody else. We'd maybe have lunch or dinner across the Wi-Fi. Me and my awesome father, Neil Finn, would have a weekly Zoom call sing-along, him strumming his mate on and me on my little Lahana ukulele. I'd close my eyes and sing, and when I'd open them, award-winning musician Neil Finn, my dad, would be giving me a look like he's just so proud. So proud. I think that's the kind of thing that dads do. Big Dad Energy was written and read by Molly Jane Ward. It was published in the online magazine Kill Your Darlings. You can read the story at killyourdarlings.com.au. You're listening to All the Best. I'm Maddie McQueen. All the Best is a place for storytellers to learn how to make audio documentaries, essays, and fiction. If you'd like to produce a story for the show, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com and send us your pitch. 
We'll pair you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. Judy's mum keeps getting migraines, which might go away if she can stick to an elimination diet, but she keeps giving in. So Judy turns to a Jewish folktale for answers. It started with bread and butter. Mum's dietitian had recommended she cut out a bunch of different foods from her diet to figure out what was triggering her headaches. That meant all the good stuff was off the table. Dairy, refined sugar, beloved gluten. I tried to be supportive, not to go on the diet myself. I had a long-standing daily appointment with peanut butter toast and white tea, but I tried to be more discreet. Dad didn't really notice. He lived behind his newspapers and only ate what was put in front of him. It was four days before Mum caved. I caught her red-handed in the kitchen late one night, a piece of buttered toast dangling from her lips. She was in her dressing gown, wrapped in a scent that pervaded my childhood, the warm mumness she only seemed to get in her pyjamas. Oh, darling, she whispered. She always spoke quietly, as if to keep the headaches at bay. I am trying. She really was. Her headaches had been worsening in recent years. When they came on, she'd have to rest in her bedroom, curtains drawn. The house would fall as still as a fly caught in a web. All the struggling over with. After four days of dieting, she was buttering toast in the dark. At six days, I caught her snacking on a Mars bar. A week in, Mum was flagrantly pouring milk into her cereal. At that, I gave her a plaintive look. I just can't, she told me in despair. I tried, but it's torturous, Judy. As she spoke, she spread a thick layer of butter on her toast with a crinkling noise and lathered strawberry jam on top in globs. When she bit into it, the jam stained her lips red. The headaches persisted, and I minimised my own noise to complete the silence Mum needed. Shallower breaths, gentler keyboard tapping. By December, she was increasingly taking days off work, and I took on more household chores. One afternoon... I peered into her bedroom while she slept. Her doona rose above the mattress like gently rolling hills. That familiar scent was there, surrounding me like when she used to tuck me in bed. Her pained breathing soared through the silence, and she whimpered on every exhale. I quietly shut the door. That night, I drew out a book from my shelf, a musty leather-bound tome with gilded edges. Scanning the crumbling pages right to left, I combed slowly through the cramped Hebrew script until I registered the word, Golem. In the depths of Christian Europe, in the city of Prague, there was a wise man, a rabbi who was known as our teacher, Rabbi Lu, Morenu Harav Lu, Maharal. As they were in cities across Europe, the Jews of Prague were confined to a ghetto, a gated neighborhood, an abattoir cage. There was always violence, and it always peaked at the festival of Pesach, 
which falls near Easter time. Christians, mourning their Lord, would turn their gaze to the ghetto. They whispered of the Christ killers, who flavoured their bread with the blood of Christian children. Their murmurs led to accusations, and the accusations led to screams. The Maharal, in his wisdom, resolved to create a protector for the children of Israel, to ease their suffering. Hashem, the Almighty, had crafted humanity from clay, from the earth. This was Adam, human, who came from Adama, the earth. Adama, Adam, earth, human. Hashem had spoken, and the shape of those words whispered life into the soil. The Maharal could not speak his own creation into existence. He would use the holy letters of the Hebrew alphabet instead. And so he went down to the banks of the Voltava River and built a statue out of clay. Pressing an aged forefinger into the statue's still damp forehead, he wrote, Emet, truth, and the golem's eyes opened. I studied the ancient book, piecing together the recipe, the process. One Saturday night, when I was ready, I crept into Mum's room. Careful not to wake her, I knelt on the bed. In my hands I held a bowl, and in it was mud I had gathered from the Yarra. I whispered a blessing over it. As I leant over Mum, some watery mud sloshed over the sides, staining the white sheets brown. I resolved to wash the sheets sometime, although if my plan worked, maybe Mum would soon feel well enough to do it herself. I dipped a finger into the mud and on her forehead wrote the word diet. English may not have been the language of the Torah, but it was sacred to me. All the stories that rested in my soul were told in English. And I felt that to use Hebrew, a language I hardly understood, would be to unleash something totally beyond my control. Traditional Lou family pancakes. One cup self-raising flour, gluten. One cup milk, dairy. One egg, one tablespoon sugar, refined. Two tablespoons butter, dairy. A quarter teaspoon bicarb soda. Serve with strawberry jam. When I woke the next morning, I could hear the crackle and hiss of something frying. A doughy smell was wafting into my room. I staggered to the kitchen. It was an unseasonably cool morning, and I shivered on the tile floor. Padding in with bare feet, I saw that Mum was at the stove with her back to me, making pancakes. I had failed then. I sighed, and Mum looked over her shoulder. The mud on her forehead had dried, but not before little rivulets dripped down to her temples, the sides of her nose, into her hair like the branching pattern of a river delta. And the letters were still there. Diet. She smiled and paced up to me, pecking a kiss on both cheeks. I kissed her as well and tasted mud on her skin. You're up early, Judy Zudi, 
why don't you try some pancakes? I looked at the pile of pancakes. They were puffy and steaming. Um... Mum turned back to the stove. I woke up a few hours ago and I just had this urge to make pancakes. But I needed some things. Gluten-free flour, almond milk, coconut sugar. So I went shopping. I glanced at the clock on the wall. 7.14am. What health food store would be open before the crack of dawn on a Sunday? Dad woke up and encountered Mum. He gaped at the muddy signage on her face, but I caught his eye and shook my head. Don't mention it to her, I mouthed. I hadn't seen Mum this excited since my high school graduation. And after all, the pancakes tasted great. The diet bore fruit. The headaches faded to nothing. The curtains stayed open. Mum made a hobby of adapting her old recipes, serving portions big enough for the three of us. She hardly seemed to leave the kitchen. That is, when she was even at home. Most of the time, she was out of the house, acquiring her ingredients. She was adapting more and more recipes and always found something to change. It was no longer just dairy, gluten and sugar. She became vegetarian overnight, stocking up on tofu and making burgers out of vegetable patties. The food was delicious and we had nothing to complain about, except that mum's grocery list no longer seemed to include the old household staples. I tried not to mind that I hadn't had milk in my tea since January, graciously ignoring mum's suggestion that I desecrate it with almond milk. The sacrilege. And when I got grumbly, I just walked down to the shops and bought some supplies myself. One morning, I flicked on the kettle, popped a tea bag in my favourite mug, and groped at the fridge door to get some milk. It was stocked full of almond milk, oat milk, rice milk, but my precious one litre in its little blue carton, gone. Dad couldn't vouch for it, but he told me that Mum had thrown out the white bread he'd been keeping in the freezer. It became a routine. When questioned about the disappearances, Mum would say that she'd just been tidying. She would apologise with a smile and do the same thing an hour later. I started to wonder if her dietician was ever going to reintroduce certain foods. Wasn't that how they figured out what was causing all the trouble? But Mum laughed me off. She'd stopped going to the dietician, she said. Why bother? She was feeling fine. Great, in fact. She'd just keep doing what she was doing. I decided that it wasn't worth fighting. She hadn't had a headache in months, and she was overflowing with energy. A perpetual motion machine. Often, she was so busy that she didn't seem to hear me when I spoke. Her bright eyes looked not at me, but through me. I had expected that the muddy word on her forehead would fade with time, that I'd need to reapply, like touching up lipstick. But the streaky writing didn't disappear. In fact, it hardened. Soon it had fossilized to a pale, stone-like grey.
One evening in March, I arrived home to find Mum in the kitchen, mixing something in a bowl. I sniffed the air. Something smells damp. Are the pipes leaking? I asked. She ignored my question. I'm trying a new recipe, darling. It's going to make a lovely cake. I peered over the rim of the plastic bowl at the brown mixture inside. It was soil, rich, damp soil, with clumps of grass still sticking out in places. An earthworm reared its head and wriggled a salute. Oh, that's great. That night for dinner, Mum served up three smooth river stones, a salad of autumn leaves, and pond water soup. She held her bowl to her mouth and slurped up the dregs. Dad didn't notice for a few minutes. When he finally put down his newspaper to eat, he stared at his rock for a while, as if the force of his gaze would turn it into a steak. This looks just lovely, he said finally. Then, turning to me, Shall we go for a drive, Judy? We went for a Macca's run and left Mum to finish the leftovers. We had dessert there too, and I tried to let my vanilla soft serve expunge the image of Mum's latest feat of baking from my memory. Characteristically unhelpful, Dad ordered a mud cake. That was Olivia Schenken, reading an excerpt from her short story, Maharal. It was published in issue 119 of VoiceWorks, a national literary journal that features new writing and art by young Australians. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories, and pay our respects to elders, past, present and emerging. All the Best is made at FBI Radio in Sydney in association with SIN and 3RRR in Melbourne. Our executive producer is Ryan Pemberton. Mel Chun is our Victorian State Coordinator. The All the Best Community Coordinators are Chloe Gillespie and Danny Stewart. Our SIN Community Coordinator is Lee Robinson. Matilda Fay and Angela Moran are our social media producers. Shining Bird composed our theme music, and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Maddie McQueen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.